Hello, and welcome to an LJU Fortnightly election special. With me, Jennifer Glover. Me, Ingrid Kohler. And me, Jonathan Carl West. Three of us this time. Oh, yeah. aren't you lucky? <laughs> More for your buck. <laughs> Jen, what have we got on the pod? Right, well, we have quite a few interviews of people from the front line of our local democracy, people who are out campaigning, people who are running for the first time, people who are standing down this year, everything that you want to know from the doorstep about, you know, what people are talking about. Um, And then we've got a great interview with Peter Stanyan from the Association of Electoral Administrators, who is telling us everything about how elections are actually run. Awesome. So we've got the front line and the back office. Yeah. Both ends of the electoral cycle. And I mean, I think well, people will hear it later, but that content from Peter is just so interesting in terms of actually the nitty gritty of what it takes to make all this all this happen. And finally, we'll at the end of the podcast, we'll tell you all about our live local elections coverage that'll be going on from when the polls close until the last count is announced, which is going to be quite a long time. It's going to be a long 36 hours. Uh, and we'll be doing that. We'll be on the press. We'll be talking on the radio, talking on the telly, uh, putting stuff out through our live blog throughout that period. So lots to look forward to. Where should we begin? I think... This election feels really different from yeah. previous local elections. And you know, we've been covering this for a long time, but this one feels different. And although we usually argue that councils need to council elections need to be about local issues and that judging outcomes of elections in the national context, you know, it's a fool's errand, but this year, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I found myself pretty torn, as, I, as I've said before, what I, what I normally do. So I have a very clear, you know, this is what I do on election week. I write stuff and say stuff about how, hey, this isn't, an, this isn't just a glorified opinion poll. This is not about national politics. This is about real local issues. It's about electing people who are going to make really difficult decisions about who cares for our older people, how we protect our children, how we make our high streets work, all the vital day-to-day stuff that local government does and that's true but this year of all years it does feel slightly kind of obtuse to pretend that it's not at least to some extent about national issues as well but of course you know i think people are concerned about low turnout i think people are concerned about protest votes but in this case who are you going to protest vote for or against well especially given the how they shape up. You know, you've got a lot of places where there isn't that many options. UKIP aren't contesting very many seats. About 16%. Yeah, so you've got a lot of district councils in in play where if polling is accurate and the Conservatives do take a big hit, it's not actually going to make that much difference because where else do those votes go? They could go to independent parties, but again, those are... They're not necessarily standing in every single place it's difficult to choose between conservatives and labor if you're trying to make a protest vote about brexit i mean maybe voters will but i don't know which way they jump and i guess they could jump either way really but you've also got the european elections possibly probably coming up which will take a lot of the focus of protest votes so there's, so my worry is that there's a risk that more than ever these become the sort of forgotten elections that slip through the crack. Yeah, I certainly hear people talking much more uh, on the news about 
the European elections that may not even happen. So is that a good moment to hear from some people on the ground? So we're worried about turnout. We're worried about whether people are voting locally on local issues or, or on national issues. What are people saying out there? So we hear from a range of councillors and hopeful councillors. Are those just the cheery, optimistic ones? Or? Uh, I mean, you can judge for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's I one person that's... who's never stood before, right? Oh, so, I see. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think the the message coming through was really that it's it's quite tricky canvassing at the moment, quite tiring, um, trying to transcend a lot of those national. Um, I think fatigue was the the word used by one of them, but I think quite positive in terms of local engagement on issues, which yeah. is which is great because that's actually we talk about this quite a lot that people don't really get what their council does, but that is you know there's some positive messages coming through from yeah. this that people yeah. actually are quite concerned with the you know, regeneration projects and the quality of their waste collection and things like that, that they actually will vote on those things. I guess you kind of have to, to some extent, you have to be an optimist to run as a councillor. What, because what you're doing is going out and saying to people, vote for me, I can make the world better. Yeah, absolutely. There's a sort of structural optimism built into the process. Yeah, yeah. And that definitely is the case for the councillors that we hear from today. So first up, we hear from Sina Shah, who is a first-time councillor candidate for Chelmsford City Council, on why she wants to be involved in local politics and how she's persuading people against protest voting. And we also hear from David Tutt, who is a veteran campaigner. He's the sitting leader of Eastbourne Borough Council, and he's talking about residents' engagement with local issues despite the Brexit effect. Then we move over to Northern Ireland, where we hear from councillor Noelle Robinson, from Ards and North Down Council. Um, she was initially a Green councillor. She's standing this time as an independent. She talks to us about the fearful political environment in Northern Ireland at the moment with the absence of uh, functioning government in Stormont. And we hear from Councillor Alan Waters. He's the leader of Norwich City Council right now, running again. This is their first time with all out elections and how they've been campaigning and working to prevent low turnout despite voter fatigue. And finally, Councillor Michelle Lowe, who's the Deputy Leader of Seven Oaks District Council, on what she has achieved while she's been in office and why she's decided not to stand again this year. My name is Sina Shah um, and I'm standing in the Chelsea City Council elections and I'll be standing for the Conservative Party. And this is your first time? Yes, I've never stood for public election before, so this is the first. It must be a pretty exciting time. So what, what, what made you decide to run for council? I guess, like anybody else, you get involved because you want to change things. Um, for me, I just felt like there wasn't enough of a young people's voice. I'm only 30 years old, which uh, to most young people is old now, but I, I think of myself quite young in politics. Um, and, and I just felt that there needed to be particularly a young woman's voice um, on, on the platform, make, you know, getting involved in making decisions. Um, I think that I've got a real strong emphasis in, in terms of um, wanting to change stuff so that we're more environmentally friendly and sustainable in the way that we run local government and the way that we plan our local area as well. So um, I've got some like key drivers that are probably quite typical of a young person. But secondly, I think as well, um, I've, I run my own business. So I'm quite keen to um, bring a bit more of an entrepreneurial theme uh, in, into local government as well. 
So what's been the biggest surprise to you as running as a, a candidate so far? I think I thought it would take up a lot of time and it does, but it also takes up more than you think. So it's, um, it's, it's quite overwhelming. It's quite stressful because it's, it's like constant. There's no lull of that, of that stress and that having to be out there campaigning. The other thing I say is that at the moment with the national politics in, in a bit of a crisis over this Brexit stuff, it's been really difficult to knock on doors because people just aren't happy with the, the national politicians and, uh, I think us local people, you know, standing in, in local elections are the ones that are facing the brunt of it. And it's been quite challenging. Yeah, I can imagine that's what we're hearing from from other people as well. Do you think that like when you're on the doorstep, do you think that most voters have a clear idea of what what the council does or what a councillor would do? Pretty much. I think um, in Chelmsford, they can sometimes confuse the line between county councils and city council and what each one is responsible for. But you work quite closely as a team, so I don't think that's too much of a concern. But what I am hearing is that they do understand the difference between Parliament and Westminster and, and local city council staff. And um, they are still going to take out some of their views on the city council elections. And that's what's worrying me is that by default, because they're either choosing not to participate or they're protest voting for another party that they wouldn't normally vote for, that they're going to end up with a result that they don't really want, um, but they're trying to make a stand. And I, I just fear that they're doing it in the wrong way. What, what kind of arguments have you used or, or conversations have you used to kind of counter that idea because I you know we're we're a localist think tank and so obviously we we know how important it is to have you know to choose the person who reflects your beliefs locally um and when when you're doing a protest vote or a protest non-vote that that can make that harder so how are you trying to convince voters to still participate in the system um I think the key thing to drive home is the fact that like I appreciate that people are upset with the national picture at the moment and um, most of us candidates are included in that you know we're not happy either but this is you know this is about local and you have to vote in the individuals that you feel are, are right to represent you and I and my, I bring it back to what I stand for I bring it back to my experiences and what I um, currently do in the community and what I intend to do if I am elected And I think that the other thing that is really important is that you remind them that, you know, my party is currently in in government there. And so if they're happy with the way things are happening in the local area, which, you know, we're we're quite a success story, we're we're a growing city, we're vibrant. If, If they're happy with that and they love where they live, then, you know, they've got to vote to keep it the same. And that's, you know, that's the message that I'm trying to get through to them. Um, I think where it's probably more difficult is um, where you've got people from my party standing where they're not necessarily currently in control of their local council. Um, I think that's a harder battle. And if you win, what do you think will be the biggest challenge? I think regaining trust. I think people have lost a lot of trust in politicians, whether it's local or national. I think that's that's going to be one of the biggest challenges. Um, and I plan on doing regular communications to overcome that. So we're really accountable. So they know, you know, we've elected this person. They're actually doing what we've elected them to do. They're, they're, um, they're our voice, essentially. And 
I guess the other challenge is going to be uh, being a minority within government. What I mean by that is as a young woman minority in government, um, you always have very different um, perspectives and different experiences and trying to get other people to understand that, that have vastly different experiences and very little understanding of your background is, I think, going to be another challenge as well. Well, we wish you the best of luck. And, Thank you. Um, it's been really great talking to you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks very much. My name's David Tutt. I'm standing as a Liberal Democrat candidate in Eastbourne in St Anthony's Ward, and I'm currently leader of the Borough Council. So, I, David, I understand that this is not your first rodeo. It's not. No, it's the 10th time um, I've stood for the Borough Council, and I've also uh, fought 10 county council elections. So I've been around for a little while. So what keeps you in politics then? It's the interest of it. It's, it's actually being able to make a difference at local level and engaging with local people, feeling part of the Eastbourne community. You're, you're obviously a veteran campaigner, but like, what's, what's it like campaigning this year as opposed to, to other years? It's interesting on the doorstep um, because of what's happening nationally. I think probably there's going to be a, a lower turnout than there has traditionally been because a lot of people are, are really just so fed up with the whole Brexit debate and that, that's not one or other side of it. People just are saying they wish that was over and that the country could move on. But uh, I'm, I'm pleased to say that most people who are actually speaking to us are talking about local in, uh, issues and things that they're interested in uh, within the town. I mean, I'm hearing different things from different people. And so when you're having those doorstep conversations, people are still focused on local issues, but just a kind of fatigue. Is that the, how you would describe the, the it? The fatigue at national level, if um, they, when you first knock on the door, if they think you want to talk to them about national issues, uh, they're, they're sort of their eyes roll and they look to the, <laughs> look to the skies. But when, when you explain to them, calling on behalf of the Liberal Democrats, it's a local election, it's about who runs the town and the, the work that we're doing within the town, then they start to engage and they start talking about those issues which are of concern to them. So what are the big issues in, in Eastbourne? Well, you, you've got the issues that perennially you get uh, in every election, the broken pavements, uh, the roads, which are actually not, of course, a, a borough council responsibility, the county council. Uh, but we've been running a number of large projects, regeneration projects in the town, and people are really keen to hear more about those, about the detail, about what, what's going to happen next and the completion dates. So we've invested a lot of money in a new conference and exhibition facilities in the town, uh, legal and general have um, put £85 million into the regeneration of the town centre and opening up lots of new stores. So it, it's, it's a good, exciting time to be in Eastbourne. And I guess, I guess you're going to have a busy weekend ahead of you on the doorstep uh, before elections Absolutely. When, when I finish speaking to you today, I'll be straight back on the doorstep. <laughs> Excellent. Well, best of luck to you. And um, thank you very much for talking with us. That's been a pleasure. Thank you. My name is Noelle Robinson and I'm an independent candidate in our local elections here in Northern Ireland. I'm standing in Bangor Central. Uh, I'm currently a sitting councillor. I started off as a Green Party representative, but I left the Green Party and, and continued the rest of my mandate as an independent. I love the freedom of being an independent and I find it worked very well in council as I, I work with all the other parties 
I have no axe to grind. They know that I'm in the job to try and do my best for local people. So this would be your second time running for council, is that what Yeah, this is my second term, yes. Uh-huh. So what's the difference running as an independent versus running uh, with a party? Well, sometimes people have the perception that there are large party machines out there. And there are, but some some of the party people I've been talking to, the people who are standing for their respective parties, they've told me that really there's only a handful of people going out canvassing with them as well. So I don't feel that I'm at any disadvantage. Um, my advantage, advantage is that I'm extremely passionate about supporting local people. I don't have a party to answer to. Uh, the people that I answer to are the people who will hopefully um, elect me. Um, so... I can go out and I can speak completely as myself. I don't have to toe a party line. What you see is what you get when I knock your door. And I really enjoy it. And the people who are going out with me canvassing are my long-suffering husband, and various friends and people who support what I'm trying to do on council. So, um, yeah, I think the parties have an advantage in that they have a certain brand and people perhaps are more aware of what they actually stand for. That gives me more of a challenge to make sure that I inform people of what I stand for. Um, I use social media quite a bit and I'm out and about. I have been out and about on the ground since during the whole course of the last mandate. I make it my business to be out and about and listening and I'm very much a grassroots sort of a person. So I think a lot of people have got to know me personally. Um, Maybe I don't have the brand behind me that the party people would have, but I don't consider it a huge disadvantage. Um, I'm well known and I hope that that will carry me over the line come next week. (laughs) We're sort of looking at, you know, asking people what it's like on the doorstep. And Mm -hmm. when I talk to councillors who we have elections in England and elections in Northern Ireland and the English candidates I'm talking to are saying it's a strange time in local politics and it's Mm -hmm. hard to get away from the national issues. Mm. What's it like in Northern Ireland? Because you have both the national issues and, and issues in particular to Northern Ireland, um, yeah. Yeah. as well as the local stuff. Well, certainly, there's a sense of um, drifting at the minute in Northern Ireland. Uh, we have a lot of people here are very aware of the Brexit situation, which particularly impacts on Northern mm. Ireland because we're, we're in a very unique position. We have the land border with the south of Ireland, so it is going to have a major impact on us here in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland. That is a feature, but I think one of the biggest features is that we have had no Stormont government for the last two years, and there's a lot of frustration with that. It has caused people to become very apathetic. People feel, that, is there ever going to be any sort of change or progress in our politics in Northern Ireland? And people are angry. And, and I think it's going to be... It's, it's, I hope that it isn't reflected in the turnout. I would like to. I'm trying to impart the message that people need to come up. We're we're local government. We're we're councillors. We're, we're hoping to be councillors again. Um, and this is where the buck stops at the moment in Northern Ireland. We only have local government at the minute, uh, with no minister sitting in Stormont or anything. So I think it's particularly important that people come out and vote to shape their council. Uh, and I'm trying to get that message over to people. I'm trying to overcome the apathy. I have a, quite an infectious personality when I'm passionate. I can be very, very passionate. And I'm trying to impart that to people. It's important that they come out and, and vote and shape their council because at the minute, 
that's the only level of government that we have in Northern Ireland. And our local government affects and impacts on so much of their everyday lives. People sometimes think that all we do in council is sort out the dens. But there's so much more to council. And I, myself, until I started to become, until I became a councillor, wasn't aware that there was actually so much that council is involved in. And it's stuff that impacts people's daily lives. And it's very, very important that people do understand the, 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 the impact that they can have on their services. So I hope that we can get over that. And the frustration and the apathy and the anger I want to see the anger turned into energy and people coming out in goodly numbers next week. I hope they do. I really hope they do. Um, I hope they don't sit back at home and think, what's the point? Because if they do that, then we're not going to get anything changed yet again. Yeah, I I absolutely hear you. And I think uh, that um, we can't have a healthy regional or mm. national democracy or even mm. international relations without really really healthy local democracy and that engagement and and turnout so what are the big issues that that you guys have now the the local issues what what are when you get people talking about local issues Mm. what's what's on their mind okay well in bangor here specifically in bangor there's a lot of of troubled people who are concerned about the regeneration of bangor bangor is a it, it was a traditional seaside town and lots of people came here on holiday and so on way back in the day. It was a Victorian seaside town. People came to take the air, to take the waters and so on. Um, and that obviously has evolved since, you know, people go abroad a lot of the time now to on holiday and so on. Bangor's largely a commuter town. Too. It's so close to Bang- to Belfast. So a lot of people who actually live in Bangor will commute every day to Belfast. So unfortunately, that's taken money out of our local economy. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of factors that have, have affected Bangor's well-being, but people are going up to, to work in Belfast, so they're up there, they're spending money in the cafes up there, they may be going to the shops up there when they're on their lunch break. Um, so I think we need to reinvent the identity of Bangor, and it's been a long process. Uh, we need to restore people's faith that we actually are very close now. We've had so many false dawns in Bangor with the regeneration of it. We've had developers come and go. But we are actually now on the cusp of having another agreement in place. And I think that in itself, we need a kickstart to the regeneration of Bangor. And I think that will be a kickstart. People locally have been starting to do things for themselves. That We have a lot of arty people in Bangor. A lot of people are very talented musicians and so on. And for me, I think that's the way that Bangor's identity will go. It will become, I don't think it'll be a retail centre the town itself will not be a retail centre again. I can see it evolving into more social enterprise, arts, crafts, all that sort of thing, where people come and spend their leisure time. Both locals and visitors will come and spend their leisure time here. So there is huge disquiet at the state of Bangor at the moment, but there are things on the cusp. As I said the other day at a hustings event, Bangor's pregnant with stuff. It's just, it's been a long gestation period, and I can see it now. It's about to turn the corner which makes me even more determined to try and go back again because I want to get my shoulder behind the wheel and drive it now. And, and I love Bangor. Uh, I'm not a Bangor native. I'm from the west of the province originally. But I love Bangor, and it can be so much so much better. Once we get the regeneration kick-started, I think that everything will start to fall into place. It's going to take time. It's going to take energy. It's going to take input from a lot of people, including local people who need to support their local businesses that are here. Um, um, but it is, it's, it's just, 
at that stage now where it's gone down so far that I honestly believe the only way is up. So regeneration is a big issue for Bangor itself. Um, obviously, last week we had the murder of Lyra McKee, the journalist, and that has affected a lot of people in Bangor locally too because it has brought back the horrors of, of the very dark days of the Troubles that people of my generation have lived through. I'm 60 now, so I was there at the start of the Troubles as a young child, and many people are in the same age bracket as myself. do not want to see a return to that violence um, and that mayhem. I think the situation in Stormont was not having a government there. It's a bit rudderless at the moment. And unfortunately, when there's a void, people like that, disruptive and violent and, and um, murderous people, can start to creep back in again. And I think that the murder of Lyra has really frightened people into thinking, well, this actually, it could happen again. It could happen again in Northern Ireland. And we really need to avoid that tinderbox situation. Um, so... Those are really key features at the moment, you know, local things such as, you know, more jobs and so on. They're always there, there in every town. But for Bangor, I think the regeneration and plus this sheer horror at the fact that with no government in Stormont, nobody at the helm at a higher level of government, what is going to happen? People are fearful, fearful. And uh, again, this is why I do believe that they should come out in, in goodly numbers next week and shape the council and pick people who are going to work for everybody uh, and not do the, the um, devi- divisive thing, work together for everybody and, and the time. It's really important. It's it's so great to hear your passion about the place where you live. And, um, you know, Northern Ireland is a, a special place for me as well uh, for mm-hmm. a host of reasons. And yeah. You know, so I, I, oh, I, I, I love hearing the hopefulness in in your voice, and and mm-hmm. obviously, it's um, it's very distressing to hear about you know Northern Ireland's come so far, and in yeah. the last in the last twenty years or so, and and to stick, you know, to keep that progress, uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, it, it's and and the role that local government can play in in keeping things on a on a forward path. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is wonderful so I wish you the very best of luck in your campaigning you. and the rest of your campaign and on election day and uh, thank you very much for speaking to us I think it has been a pleasure I'm Councillor Alan Waters I'm the leader of Norwich City Council and um, I represent uh, one of the 13 wards in the city which is called Croom Ward and this year Uh, uncommonly because we've had the boundary commission down Uh, instead of being out by thirds it's an all-out election so all 39 seats are up for grabs and that makes it a particularly interesting year politically I bet I bet so how's the campaigning going how what's it like out on the doorstep well as we've got closer to the election and as there's been some uh, clarity about absolute clarity about complete deadlock on Brexit. Clarity about deadlock, I like that. So, so, you know, hope has has faded that uh, we will be leaving. And, of course, the extra bit of spice is the fact that we're, you know, moving into uh, the likelihood of European elections. Um, The shadow of Brexit, which I always thought was going to be a little cloud uh getting possibly larger while we were campaigning for the local elections um was going to play 
uh, a little bit more into uh, the way people are thinking about voting. So the conversations on the doorstep have been very much to remind people that these are local elections. Um, our line has been whether you voted to leave or remain, everybody needs good quality public services and uh, a good efficient council. So those are the things that people should uh, give importance to rather than what they think about the party leaders or whether they're never going to vote again because they voted once only and that was to vote to leave the European Union. Uh, so it's been okay. Um, I think the local election message has generally got through to people, but, you know, watching very carefully about people feeling disaffected or exhausted by politics in general. So we're sort of anticipating a bit of a lower turnout. We're working mm -hmm. hard to make sure that's not going to be the case. Um, you know, we worked very hard uh, in the election uh, to make sure that um, uh, people put their postal votes in. Postal voters are more likely to vote than those who have the option of going down to the local polling station. But we are just kind of looking out perhaps for a lower a lower turnout for this set of elections. I I mean, from from your perspective and from my perspective, that that's really disappointing. But I think you know, it's kind of understandable this year as well. Um, I guess we're all a bit fed up uh, with, with some of this stuff going on right now. But what are the big local issues in in Norwich right now? Um, well, the main opposition in Norwich is uh, the Green Party. And the Green Party are making a significant play uh, around the climate change issues. And I guess they would have been uh, buoyed up by the fact that, you know, the, the, the climate emergency, the Extinction Rebellion narrative has been uh, very active uh, during, during this, this, this period uh, leading up to the, the local elections. In the way they're portraying the Labour administration, uh, inevitably, is that you know we're falling short of what we can do on the environment. I would naturally argue that we're we're doing impressive work around this, but that's certainly one of the issues of contention in some of the wards in in, in Norwich South, uh, which is a, a more more middle class um, university uh, sort of orientated demographic and so there's some 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 tough contests going on there the fact is that that labor has done very well against the greens in the last two sets of elections so the greens are down to five seats we're on 31 three liberal democrats but the greens are hoping that they're going to make a bit more traction um and of course we're pressing on the fact that um you know despite serious funding cuts um with managing to provide good quality services. We're pushing on the big issues around more affordable housing, um, more security for private sector tenants. 25% of the population of the city is living in privately rented housing, so that's a big issue. And we recently did a piece of work on um, the gig economy in Norwich, so we're at making a very strong case for working again in a broader partnership with 
supportive businesses and the trade unions to uh, get improvements in in wages. We're a living wage authority, um, and but also terms and conditions of employment. So I think from Labour's point of view, uh, a, a lot of bread and butter issues. Uh, we're very much focused on on the on the, the, the necessary things that make for people's quality of life. That gig economy stuff sounds really, really interesting. Um, so we might want to follow up with you on on that one later. Sure. Um, but this is um, it's gorgeous uh, weather. I'm talking to you on on Friday before the elections, mm. and um, so I guess you're you're probably back out on the campaign trail now. Yes, uh, well, every day really doing doing something. So this afternoon um, I'll be going um, out uh, again to do some some canvassing. Um, what what's happened uh, is that there have been some of the wards have been significantly reconfigured as a result of the the boundary commission's review. So that's another interesting sort of element in the mix really of people. Uh, first of all, coming into new wards. Um, the second thing is is reminding people that they've got three votes, mm. not just one. And the third element is split votes, because this is an opportunity where where people can exercise more choice. You know, um, you could have a dash of red, you could have a dash of green, you could uh, have a dash of yellow, you could vote for all men, you can vote for all women. So there'll be some, there'll be some interesting and unpredictable elements, I think, in terms of the, the outcome in, in some seats where normally you'd be able to predict a, a straight outcome fairly clearly and fairly early on. With, with the split vote, with people maybe voting for one or two candidates or, you know, getting tired by the time they get to the middle of the ballot paper. <laughs> I mean, it happens. Uh, you know, I've had enough of this, you know. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the poor hapless, poor hapless cancer. I mean, I'm bottom of the list. Oh, with, yes, as, you a, know, as a W, yeah, of course. As a W, you know, so I had thought about changing my name to Aardvark. I always do that every year, but I never <laughs> get around to doing it. So uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to see. It will be quite interesting to see if there is a sort of a differential there. But so everybody's, uh, you know, a bit tired now because, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of a fairly, fairly grueling sort of process, particularly if you're, you've got other things in your life like a job. Um, and, you know, just a little bit uncertain about outcomes and, and quirks. So it'll certainly be uh, an interesting, interesting day. And of course, we won't know the results really fully until sort of quite late on in the afternoon on the Friday, I don't think. It's a it's a tense and exciting time. Um, so I won't I won't keep you uh, from the campaign trail any any longer. Um, and thanks very much for talking with us, and best of luck. Thank you, Ingrid. Good to talk to you. I'm Michelle Lowe. I'm Deputy Leader and Cabinet Member for Housing and Health at Sevenoaks District Council. And, Michelle, I understand that although you're having elections in Sevenoaks this year, uh, you're not on the ballot this time. No. Um, after 12 years, um, I've decided to stand down. Um, I was originally elected in 2007, um, I was eight months pregnant with my youngest child um, and I started off as a backbencher and for me having a toddler and a small child 
being elected to the council gave me another identity and something else to do other than just being a mum. Not that there's anything wrong with just being a mum, and some people are happy to do that, but I needed something else, and it was flexible, and it fitted around my family life. So I could look after the children in the day, and when my husband came home from work, I could go to evening meetings. And my residents were absolutely brilliant, because if I had a site meeting or something like that during the day, they'd actually take turns in pushing the pushchair and sometimes even occupying them with Lego. So it was absolutely brilliant. And then when my youngest started secondary, sorry, it's not secondary school, primary school, I was promoted to the cabinet and then I was able to do a lot more during the day. But again, it was fairly flexible because I was able to arrange meetings around the school day. So it really worked for me and I would really recommend it for people with caring responsibilities because it gives you something outside of the home um, and it gives you something else to kind of strive for and sort of live for. But since um, going into the cabinet, first as uh, portfolio holder for housing and community safety and later for community uh, for housing and um, health, I've achieved so much that there's nothing more for me to do. Um, and I feel now is the time to go. I think people should always go when they're at the top um, and not sort of hang around until they're sort of past their sell-by date. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I suppose politics would be a different place if everyone had that perspective. Um I mean, that sounds fantastic, and I, I would dispute with you that you've given everything that you have. Um, You know, I've talked with you before, and I think you're a really thoughtful politician, and, um, some, you know, the work that you've done on, on health and housing, I think, has been, has been really fantastic. So do you think you would ever come back to politics? Well, I'm still on the parliamentary candidates list, um, and I haven't given up potentially parliamentary ambitions. I fought Coventry Northeast in 2015 and Coventry South in 2017. So there's a possibility that I'll go, go back parliamentary route. Um, I may come back to local government after I've had a break. I've currently recently got a new job in public affairs for a charity and I'm really enjoying that. Um, at the moment, I can't do a family, a full-time job and the council or not as a sort of a front bench politician, I can't do the council and I'm not sure I could step back. You know, I think when you've been the deputy leader of a council, I think it's very difficult to step back and be um, a backbench again. And even if I could do that, I don't know if it would be fair on my successor to sort of try and do housing and health when somebody else who won an award with the LGIU, etc., is sort of hanging around on the back benches. So I think it's only fair on my successor and me to have that clean break. But yes, um, I really enjoyed it and I loved it. I just think now is a time for me to have a, a new start in life. Well, thanks, Michelle, for talking with us. And, and best of luck to you in your Thank you. next phase of your career. Thank you very much. So some fascinating insights there into campaigning in, in very different parts of the country and in, in very different ways. I think the thing that really stands out for me, or that slightly surprised me, I think, is you know people are saying, "Look, we are trying to have a conversation about about local issues. People are wanting to talk to us about that." I hope that's true. Um, you know, I think it is clear that politicians of all parties are desperate, more than normal, to make this a conversation about local issues, not about Brexit not about national politics. It sounds like they're, that's having some resonance. But they're having people, to do some persuasion. But they're having to, to work it. really hard at it. 
so where that ends up, I think, is going to be is going to be really interesting. I was also struck by you know, several of the of the councillors we spoke to there are worried about low turnout, you know, which is something we always worry about in local yeah. elections, and because it is always low, right? So we always you know bang our heads against the wall, thirty high thirties, you know, thirty eight, thirty nine percent in most places, most years. That's six out of ten people not bothering to vote for the people who will make vital decisions about everything from bins to swimming pools to, to, to care homes. Yeah, I think that is a real, both a problem and a symptom of a deeper problem in our democracy. What's, it, what's going to happen? You know, may, maybe we'll get, may, you know, maybe the current state of politics will drive higher turnout. Maybe we will see really rock bottom turnouts. If we do, what does that mean? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, on the on the blog already um, this week, I have a, a post that talks about hot seats and not seats and those which are really hotly contested and those which are like basically not contested at all and other places where people are electing by thirds, where there's absolutely no chance of change or change of control um, and just the kind of transparency of information which could help voters be more informed and maybe drive some turnout. I don't know. Sure, sure. But look, you know, so we, I think more than ever, these are going to be elections in which we learn a great deal, but it may not be exactly clear what we've learned. Uh, and it may be quite hard to draw any very firm conclusions. But that won't stop us trying. No. <laughs> <laughs> so tune in. So tune in <laughs> Thursday on night Thursday for night. our musings. <laughs> but, but before we talk about that, I, I mean, one of this can only happen because elections happen because there's a whole process you know, because actually polling stations open and there are ballot papers and pencils and everything and I think people yeah it's really underappreciated just how much work an, an organization and complexity go into that so I'm really pleased Ingrid you've been talking to Peter Stanion I interviewed him last year for the pod yeah. he's back this year he's with the, more election anecdotes with more election anecdotes amazing anecdotes gas leaks caretakers oversleeping <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're joking now, but did you guys see in the news this week about how Indonesian election workers died? 300 of them, 200, loads of them died just of overwork, overheating. I mean, that... We're not expecting that to happen on Thursday. But it is a long old day. It's a long old day. Well, in was, fact, a 24-hour yeah. period. Yeah, because they, they, they attend the, uh, often are administering the count as well. The other complicating factor this year is obviously preparing for the EU elections bum, at very, bum, very... Bum. Yeah, at <laughs> very short notice. So, Something which should take 12 months is being done in... Is that right? Yeah. Like three weeks. I mean, yeah. he's saying, a, you know, a six-month time frame, but it's... And in, and running this election in six weeks from kind of start sure. to finish, I mean that's not a hundred percent true because I think election administrators, being the kind of people that they are, who plan ahead, they were anticipating that this might happen and they were ringing around, but they couldn't actually necessarily make final yeah. plans until no, the no, election but, but was I've, actually I've, agreed. I've spoken to people who who a couple of weeks ago were ringing primary schools and saying, look any chance that you know we can have a space for a polling station no sorry we've got sats no you know it's booked up no yeah we are they are trying to to organize something really complicated in a ludicrously short time frame and you know i describe shameless plug in my mj column coming out on thursday i described this as you know the very almost the very definition of a thankless task <laughs> you know these elections could still not happen they could be cancelled any time up until the 22nd 
And if they do happen, and I predict if they do happen, I predict they will run almost seamlessly because our electoral administrators are superb in this country. They will run seamlessly. They will have been put together at the drop of a hat and people will get no thanks You won't even notice. You won't even notice. (laughs) But um, what I will say is you can think when you go and vote on Thursday, if you are voting, if your council's having an election, thank your electoral administrator. Thank your poll worker. I mean, don't waste their time. They're very busy people. (laughs) But just, you know, a nod and a thanks. Yeah, for sure. Let's hear from Peter. Hi, it's Ingrid here, and I'm with Peter Stanyan from the Association of Electoral Administrators. Hi, Peter. Hi, Ingrid. Thanks for coming in and having a chat with us. So you you know the score about elections, and I think a lot of people don't really realize like how much work just goes in to putting on an election. So I, I kind of want to ask you, like, run me through a day, what happens on election day, but it's more than that, isn't it? Once you've got to election day, that's the easy bit. Um, in many respects, because all the planning's been done or should have been done by that point. So 15 hours worth of polling and counts that follow. Um, fingers crossed everything goes well and you just react to issues on the day. But in reality, um, it's a project, an election from start. It's a start, middle and end. But it's a project with uh, non-movable deadlines. So in normal circumstances, the local elections taking place in May, that planning would have started in December of last year. Um, so with experienced people who know, know how to run it, like they, they know what they're doing. Absolutely, you plan you plan to the end day, and it doesn't stop at the, when you've announced results. There's lots of things to do afterwards, but um, ultimately you're planning for that one day with all of the preparatory stuff that goes on uh, before that as well. But when you've got that sets poll, you know what you're aiming for, and you're able, as with any project, to be able to better manage your resources and ensure you're in the best place when it comes to the actual delivery phase. So a lot of councils, uh, we, we cover, do lots on local government finance, and have over the number of years, and we know how much pressure councils are under right now. How does that impact things like electoral services? Electoral services teams are very small teams. There's traditionally in local authorities, you've got the larger authorities in London, for example, with five, six people in a team because of the size of the authorities that cover those areas, but right down to part-time staff that are running electoral services. So there's an awful lot of reliance on colleagues across local authorities. Now, one of the challenges is with the um, reduction size of authorities, with with services being delivered by partner organisations, for example, there aren't the bodies to call on within uh, local authorities in quite the same way. Even five years ago, there were. There may be the willingness to help, but the day job still has to carry on. The election's taking place, but the business as usual for the local authority carries on. So you would have... A bit of redundancy that, you know, maybe not redundancy, but you like you can you can shift some people around in the lead up to polling day and on polling day itself. And there just isn't the kind of wiggle room anymore. There's not a wiggle room that's there. I mean, there's the sort of areas that that traditionally uh, electoral service, like like a lot of areas in local government planning, environmental services, whatever it may well be, are very specialist areas. And there'll be very, very few people who've got the technical knowledge to, to deliver. The way that elections has transpired, electoral registration of the last few years, is that um, there's an awful lot more, I wouldn't say bureaucracy, but the foot soldiers need to be out there doing to make sure that on polling day everything is correct. So there are things that can be done from within local authorities. Call centres can take the, the frontline calls, for example. You can draw in expertise in the areas, project planning, project oversight will help, but ultimately it comes down to one or two individuals in that authority who have the technical expertise to understand 
a raft of legislation and processes that, that deliver successful um, elections. So one of the things that, that's changing around elections is voter ID. So we had the first big voter ID pilots for local elections last year and due to have a bunch more this year. How's that going? Yeah, they've been very well administered. Um, putting the whether they're, they're right or wrong to one side, the actual administration of the election is going well. Um, that's not to say that there may be some hurdles to be um, jumped in the in the meantime. But I think the thing to put in context is that the election that's being delivered in each of those um, pilot areas is still an election with the voter ID element actually put on top of that election. So regardless of the fact you've got the complications of the different ways of doing things, the expectation on the need to provide that ID to be able to vote, it's still the same election being delivered. And as a result, there's still that uh, need to deliver it to the highest of qualities as possible. So let's come on to polling day itself, because I think people don't, a lot of people don't know how the, the mechanics of what actually happens on the day. Um, so polls open it, and I, I should say I've never voted here. Can't vote, mm. so it'll be news to me too. <laughs> <laughs> the polls open at seven. Seven a.m. in the morning, on the dot. On the dot. So what what happens on like polling morning if you're an electoral administrator? I always argued when when I delivered elections that the worst time for an electoral administrator is between six in the morning and five to seven. Because at that point, you still have control over what's happening. What you want to know is that your presiding officers, your poll clerks, your temporary staff that you've employed for one day of the year have all set their alarms at the right time. They've all <laughs> got out and delivered. They've actually gone to the correct polling station. Uh, the caretakers, I had a chief executive um, uh, once who said to me, the UK democracy works on the basis of a caretaker getting out of bed half an hour earlier. And that's very true because... Most of the instances of uh, panic, shall we say, at 7 o'clock in the morning are because a building isn't open. And that's where you'll hear stories of polling stations setting up in boots of cars because 7 o'clock is sacrosanct. You start the ballot at 7 o'clock. Really? Absolutely. In the boot of a car? I've had that. I've been in my experience one or two on two occasions. Um, and effectively, as long as a, the first voter there at 7 o'clock in the morning is entitled to receive the same degree of service as the final voter through the door at 10 o'clock at night. So if I arrive at 7 in the morning... I should be able to vote. If that means I have to do it in the back seat of someone's car for secrecy, then that will happen. And that's happened in lots of instances, just simply because. And that, that's an because that caretaker the, didn't get up because the caretaker all the keys didn't work, <laughs> or we issued the wrong keys to the venue, for example. So it's all those things, all the best laid plans. It is that that immediate period prior to seven o'clock is very nerve wracking for returning officers, electoral administrators, because once you get to seven, all the planning that you've done for the previous six months will kick into being. All the training that takes place. The, the dealing with the, the individual electors, the challenges that will take place on the day. It should be a case of us just reacting to challenges on the day, things that arise during the day. You know, um, an elector is not on the electoral register or they're, they're being an incident that, that is reacting. And it just carries on going then till 10 o'clock in the evening. And as soon as that final voter has cast their ballot... Do you behave a big sigh of relief then? No, it doesn't stop them because you've got to count them. So it's about... And you've also got the, the, the challenge of getting those boxes back from those polling stations safely back into either the count venue, if it's being counted overnight, or the, the uh, uh, wherever they're being delivered back to be secured until the count the following day. So there are, it doesn't stop. So that takes a long, long day, 15, 15 hours, no breaks. Polling station staff do not have the right to leave their polling stations. Forget European time working directives and things like that. 
you're on duty. If there's a queue of people to vote, they're entitled to that um, uh, ability to do so. So um, it's a long old drag polling day. And then some of those same people, certainly electoral administrators, certainly returning officers, if they're counting overnight, will be there till three, four, five o'clock in the morning. So you're talking seriously a 24-hour day yeah. for many of those yeah. stuff. On top of, and the bit that gets forgotten, is that there's been the six-week election period beforehand with nominations, through to postal voting, applications, etc., and all of the work that's gone on beforehand. So it's a long, long drag, but ultimately you get to the, the satisfaction of a safe, secure election being delivered and the ability to put your head down over that weekend and not see the light of day again until the Monday morning. And and, and it's a long weekend too. It is a long weekend this time, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so there was a bonus on that in, in that respect, yes. So that was good. So you talked about some of the challenges during the day. What are some of the things that can arise during the day um, that might... Well, you plan the unexpected. I mean, you, you take every single scenario you can think of. There are some... The most common ones are someone will turn up at a polling station and, and they'll, they'll not be on the electoral register. Um, and it's about dealing with that situation. It could be a mistake that's made. Very, very rarely is that the case. It will be disgruntled voters. They've not received poll cards or the, the, the right... Parliamentary elections, the classic one is there's not the name of the Prime Minister on my ballot paper. And you think, well, that's because you're not voting for the Prime Minister. You're voting unless you happen to be in that particular constituency. So a lot of it is just reacting to the public because you're dealing with the, the biggest project that local authorities will run um, on an annual basis. And then you've got the, the things that just come from the unknown. What happens if you get a gas leak just adjacent to a polling station? Polling continues, but you've got to move that box to allow that to continue. Um, there have been lots of instances of... Um, again, from my experience, a polling station that was being attacked by youths during the day, stones and, br- and glass being thrown. Oh, what wow. do you do? You carry on going because there is no... Once a poll has started, it cannot stop unless there is a riot or the death of a candidate. Other than that, it carries on going regardless. So, And that's just really about... One of the beauties of electoral administrators and the, and the profession is the ability to roll with the punches. To, to It's about delivering that safe election. It may not be perfect... But at the end of the day, it's providing a safe result, the correct result, what the electorates ask for that to be, be done. Very rarely do you see those results actually being challenged because they, all of the little challenges are being reacted to appropriately. On, on, the, on the day and in the lead up? On the day and in the lead up, yeah. So like the burning question that when I talk to other people about elections or any elections work that goes on, pencils, why, do, why are pencils used the ballot there's so many um different stories behind it um what the law actually says is that each polling station should be provided with an implement to mark the ballot paper it doesn't say a pencil um so it could be anything it could be a a, 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 a quiver if it needed to be you know a a finger dipped finger, in blood yeah, almost effectively <laughs> Um, but it's, you know, it's, you know there, there are many, it, they've been around for a long time, but we, we're using the 1872 Ballot Act as the primary piece of legislation, which has been updated over the years. But ultimately, Queen Victoria, walking through into a polling station, would recognise what's going on. It's not changed significantly. Things have been put on the top. Um, pencils have been around a long time. Biros weren't developed 150 years ago. Um, and it's about the fact that actually they are the most usable implements, if we're going to put it that way. They can be sharpened. They can be replaced. They have to be tied to um, the the booths because simply people like them to mark their golf cards or their uh, you know their shopping lists. Oh, so, I'm a, I'm a pen stealer. Like <laughs> I don't mean to do it, but like I'll just put it in my bag. Well, there we go. So, but that comes back to that point I said that every voter deserves the same. So they should be able to walk in there. And that's you know there are there are lots of urban myths about it, but there's nothing in law that says it must be a pencil. 
but equally it's the most obvious implement to mark a ballot paper. So there's a bit of an elephant in the room when we're talking about local elections at LGIU. It's the local elections that we really care about. Absolutely. But there's another election coming up as well, European elections. What's that like now with people having to do two elections? We reckon this might be the closest elections in history in terms of... Three weeks apart. Three weeks apart. I said in my my blog uh, a week or so ago that electoral administrators love democracy, but probably not so much now. Um, You only want so much democracy in one month, right? Effectively, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I think there are different challenges that are being being set. Um, You've got those local authorities already running local polls. Um, They they are are simply, they'll, they'll be punch drunk coming out of the back of their local elections because they are the most important elections. They are the, the ones that you're electing your board of directors for your authority, effectively. Um, and because of that, there's a lot of local attention. Um, and they're the most complicated to run because many of them are multi-vacancy seats. And they, they, they throws mm-hmm. different challenges up. So they will be going straight off the back of those counts on the Friday, uh, the latest, through to close of registrations for the European election from electors on the following Monday or Tuesday, the 7th of May. Oh, is that, is that when is the close is? Close, the is close that day? That. Okay. So you are literally one on top of the other. Um, it's that six-month product project I talked about being run in effectively in six weeks. And it's a project that we were constantly told would not happen. So there'd been no planning done. Credit to colleagues in civil service, they're doing their, their families to make sure that a lot of the, the fees and charges and the things that need to be in place are going to be provided, but they were caught on the hop as well in that respect. But very little planning could have been done. And the, the different challenges is the fact that polling stations won't be available. We're into exam seasons. The secondary schools, if they're used, are not available, quite rightly, because mm-hmm. uh, yeah. pupils are sitting in their exams. You've got the, the availability of staff. Um, a lot of election administrators will have planned on the basis of local polls. They're going to have a, some time off at the end of May, and that's now gone out the window. Well deserved, yeah. And uh, it, it, the, So... I was talking to somebody earlier today, and I think one of the best ways of describing it is almost that resignation that electoral administrators will deliver. It's almost that expectation that they will deliver. Yeah, I, I, um, I have to say, I feel every confidence that we will have, you know, free and fair elections that will be well run on the day, but every sympathy to those who are actually having to do that. It's simply because it's that constrained timescale, and this is where... Credit goes to local authorities on the widest sense of the word because they are providing all the resource they can to assist those administrators deliver that project. Um, I think it's fair to say, I think senior returning officers have said the polls will run. They won't be to the quality that any of them would like because simply it'll be a fast and dirty election, probably the way of putting it. In terms of everything that needs to be done legally will be done, but there'll be no bells and whistles on the top. So does that mean like you might not have the best venue, like the the that that you would have chosen if it had it been available? It's all those or... sorts of things. It's, it's basically it's a needs must situation. It may well, but there will be polling station changes. There will be um, count venue changes. There will be uh, inexperienced staff. There will be more than experienced staff. You know, people will be dragged back um, in to to assist. Um, the poll will be delivered securely. There will be very fair results coming out of it in terms of what the electorate has asked mm-hmm. for. But it's, it's, it's the sorts of things around... Contingency is the big word, and it's always, you know, it should be the big word in, in everything that, 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 that underpins what we do. But it's the simplest things. Like no one has a clue what the turnout's going to be. We've got the two new parties coming into it now with, with, the, with their um, 
no idea what their effect will be on the on the main parties or, or, or the vote. No idea what turnout will be. The ballot papers will be two foot long. They're not a tiny slip of paper. That has practical implications for folding a paper three, four, five times. will slow counts down. will slow the issue of the ballot paper down. It will fill ballot boxes up very quickly. Now, they will fill up remarkably quickly. Um, there's something called a, a, a ballot box compactor on the market. I tend to call them, call them rulers. But you just basically have to stuff papers as deeply into ballot boxes as you can. Because once they're in the box, it's a secret ballot. You can't open that box and rearrange it. Oh, yeah, them. you can't open it to smush it no. down, can so, you? Um, oh, right. If you have an issue, and again, I've seen it where there have been issues where papers are folded. It sounds the most bizarre, inane, technical, minor issue. But by nine o'clock on polling day morning in the European election... We could be getting phone calls from around polling stations. I need another ballot box because it's full. They may well not be because there's that many papers in it. It's just the fact that the size... The way that it's just kind of of jammed in a a bit. Absolutely. So they're the sorts of things that are testing uh, the brain cells of uh, returning officers and administrators. Some of them very, very tired because they're going through the local elections Mm -hmm. now. Those areas where they've not got local elections will traditionally be in the areas where there's a higher influx of European Union nationals. So they've got a huge issue in terms of registering EU nationals. Uh, you're talking in some of the London authorities, 40,000 European nationals who all need to be contacted. Of course, because they have a right to vote. They have uh, a right to vote, the choice to make that right in the UK. Um, but they've got, again, to the same deadline, uh, I think it's the 7th of May, to be able to register their wish to vote in the UK. That will then throw out another load of issues in terms of those who've missed that deadline will then be rightly unhappy that they're not able to cast their ballot. So it's it's that six-month um, project in a six-week period on the back of um, running actually what is probably more important a project alongside it, which is the local elections, and that's the more complicated one to run. The danger is the European will, will get overlooked until the last minute. It will be delivered, but there could be things that need to be reacted to far more than would have been the case had it been a, a planned poll that we're going into. Yeah, because right... So... For listeners who may not, you would normally run the two elections on the same day if it's it was a planned election. Way, yeah, in recent years, in recent times, the last sets of Europeans have always meant that the locals have been deferred by three weeks to the the June date, which has traditionally been the European date. So uh, combined polls throw up different challenges, but it's one set of polls have been um, run on the same Which time. means one venue. One and... venue, one set of ballot boxes, one set of staff, one etc. So uh, the complications in terms of running the poll but and also much much more straightforward in terms of the administration of the of the uh, the technicalities of it cool so when let's let's talk about the count now so like yeah. you know 10 o'clock hits and and the doors and the doors close oh do you have a right to vote if you're already in the line you do indeed yeah there was a change in the law after 2010 general election uh splashed all over the 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 media with people in polling stations not being able to vote that the law now uh, says that anybody who's w- was, is waiting to vote at 10 o'clock or to hand in a postal vote to that polling station, which they're entitled to do, then they should be allowed to actually cast their ballot. So that will mean, it's tradition, there's queues outside polling stations. There are, there'll be planning taking place to make sure that anybody who is actually waiting to vote is is grabbed and anybody who arrives after that is not then entitled to pass across the ballot. So yes, nowadays a poll could finish five past ten, ten past ten, but it's because they were there by the deadline. By by ten o'clock, That's right. right yeah. So so uh, never mind ten o'clock at ten past ten or whatever <laughs> it is. <laughs> when the last ballot is yeah. cast, what happens then? First step, 
for the polling station staff, close that station down, and to account for all of the ballot papers. It's the security check. We know how many ballot papers have gone to that polling station, and we need every one of those ballot papers back, whether they've been issued or not. They'll either be in a ballot box with a, with a vote cast on it, or they'll be the unused books, and they will both get checked at the count. That's the most important part of the presiding officer's role at the end of the day. They then make their way as quickly as possible to the venue, um, wherever that may well be. If they're counting overnight, it's straight into the process. Um, and that is firstly to validate the number the presiding officer says should be in that box. So if they say there's 752 ballot papers, you gotta make sure the there first are. thing are, they don't even look at the votes being cast, they count, are there 752 ballot papers? And then reconcile the fact they've got the right numbers, go through that whole process for all of the polling stations, and then they start sorting and counting between each of the candidates. So um, the most important part of the count is that verification stage, which is to make sure that we can guarantee to candidates that we have counted for every ballot paper that was issued out. Very simple anti-fraud measures that are in place in that respect. So it just it's a, it's a seamless process. So it's basically verif- um, verification mix, so you're not... Uh, you maintain the secrecy you're not counting all the ballot papers from one polling station in the same place so it looks so you can't identify voters to maintain oh, right, right, secrecy right. of the ballot you must mix it with another ballot box before you um, go in and start sorting okay oh okay so literally you mix the ballot papers you would say you must uh, you must take um, a, the polling station boxes so box number one must be mixed with box number two so that actually uh, a candidate cannot by accident or, or design, identify that the ballot paper there was actually marked by Peter Stanion because that maintains that secrecy of the ballot. And you do the same with postal votes where you mix it in. Um, it's just straightforward, just mix them together. Uh, at that that's stage. really interesting. And then people might think that that's a bit excessive, but I've actually been reading Rise and Fall of the Third Reich or yeah. Audible listening yeah. to it. And they, they had a plebiscite uh, mm-hmm. to approve some horrible thing and anyone anyone who voted no they were actually able to identify who that was and bad things really bad things happened to them so that's unlikely to happen here but you've got to keep those things in place it's a historical thing because it came in with with the the secrecy provisions that start off in the 1830s 1872 ballot really enshrined it um because it was in 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 back in the 1800s landowners and if you vote against the wish of the landowner because it wasn't universal suffrage uh, obviously, we know about the the, um, the changes that have taken place in the hundred years since the, uh, uh, the, the the women's suffrage came into being. But, but even before that, it was only landowners, it was only property owners, heads of properties, and you could vote against the wishes of your landowner. And then that, so that's why secrecy came in. So, so that that mixing process is solely to make sure that we avoid that ability in a small parish, for example, would be quite easy. Of course, a large yeah. one in London, maybe not. So, yeah, and and maybe even small consequences <clears throat> of someone snubbing you in the street afterwards. That's right. It's definitely something you'd want to avoid because you. Well, just look at the the whole debate around the, the Brexit. You know, the, remain and, and leave. It's, mm. it's just dividing families, and that's exactly the sort of thing that, that the secrecy of the ballot is designed to avoid. So after the ballots are mixed, and then they're starting to starting the count, then then you sort between uh, for for a single vacancy. It's straightforward. You sort between candidate A, B, C, D. It's very, very visual. Um, very easy for the candidate to see what's going on. On a multi-vacancy where you're electing two or three councillors, there are lots of different methods of doing it. One called grass skirts, where you stick the ballot papers to pieces of paper and then read across the votes on that. Something now called a, a voting board, where you, you do a similar sort of thing, put them under a perspex sheet. Five-bar gates, things like that. Far less visual, but equally accurate, because you are still counting 
in most instances, most returns will count the unused votes as well. So you can still go back to your first figure and say, I had 1,000 ballot papers, three people elected, there's 3,000 votes cast. So therefore, that means I've counted all the votes across. So I just go through that process until you come to a, the, the situation where you will agree the accuracy of the result. Then I'll be happy with the actual outcome. <laughs> yeah, result. Yeah. But the accuracy, Someone will be. <laughs> well, absolutely. Um, and then once you agree with the accuracy of the result, then that will then be declared if they don't agree with that accuracy, you go to a recount or whatever, as that may well be. So it's a straightforward admin process, but it's uh, quite slow to start with because you need to make sure what's come from the polling stations is actually accurate before you then get to your results at the end of the day. Now, I've I've only been to one count, um, and which was in the London Borough and really fascinating, an yeah. overnight count. It was really exciting and, and stuff, but there was a lot of contesting of what marks on the ballot yeah. really meant. Um, did that mean, you know, a firm intent to vote? And and there were, were all kinds of interesting marks on, on those ballots. I've seen them all. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what do you do when you have a dispute like that? How does that, you know... It's if, the return officer's decision. There shouldn't be debates. It's the return officer's decision. But if somebody, you can vote for three vacancies and there's four, four marks over, on there? Overvoting. So you, there, was, there was some straightforward rejection categories. And if a vote falls in those, you vote for too many candidates. It's an unmarked paper. There's writing on the ballot paper by which you identify who the voter is. Mm. That defeats the secrecy of the ballot. Um, or it's... Void for uncertainty is, is the technical term where you look at the paper and you can't actually hand on heart say yes that's the intention of the voter, but the the basic um, premise is that the return officer will always be looking to identify what was the voter's intention. So there may be some very indiscreet marks put on ballot papers, but if it's clearly marked for candidate B, then it's a vote for candidate B. Um, it's the sort of thing where there may be dispute with the agents, but ultimately. Well, the return officer simply says, that is the decision I'm coming to. If they're rejecting a paper, the agent can object to that rejection. Mm -hmm. still means it's rejected, but if it goes to court afterwards, it's been recorded. If they're accepting a vote for a particular candidate, it cannot be challenged because the returning officer's decision is final. So, that I mean, that gets us to the, to the results. And normally that would be... You know, I, I would hardly say that's the end of the story because you, you become a counselor straight away. Mm. That's where we, you know, like we come in and other people come in yeah. and help the new counselors. And it's a big, it's a big thing. But of course, this time that isn't the end of the story. It's just rolling straight back into it for another election three weeks. Yeah, after. I mean, what well, what you traditionally do at the end of the of the of the count process is you bag up. Well, you still got to bag up and secure all of the paperwork for the local election because there's an election petition procedure which takes a challenge can be lodged within 21 days of the date of the results oh, right. um, date of the poll sorry um, so it's got to be secured because the first thing a judge will say is well if that was in an open area how do you know it's not been tampered with so all of the standard processes for a local election will carry on regardless and then they'll get to that Monday they won't have that Monday off they'll be straight back in um, uh, on, on, on the, sorry, the Monday's after so it's after the, the 23rd isn't it they will be straight back in probably on the Saturday or the Sunday to actually start preparations for the European because the same ballot boxes will be used the paperwork the, and again it comes down to the minutiae of, of detail the pens the pencils the rulers the, the, the drawing pins, the posters, most of those will all be then recycled to be reused again three weeks later at that poll for the European Parliament. There will be some slightly different um, information to be sent out there, but the basic premise will be 
80% of what comes back will go straight back out again. So it's about just starting that process all over again, effectively from that Monday morning all the way through then to the 23rd of May when they'll be delivering that poll as things stand. As things stand. So, I mean, of course, we could call off those elections. But so. it will make very little difference uh, no, because... at this stage because all the preparatory work's been done. Um, the only, you know, it could be called off up to midnight on the 22nd. If that were to happen, so be it, it would happen. But those, all the staffing appointments would have been made, all of the venues would have been booked, all the arrangements of the count would have been in place, all the ballot papers would have been printed, all the boxes prepared. So even at this stage, even though the preparatory work is continuing... Lots of it's been done already. Um, so it won't make that much difference. The day of poll will make a difference. Obviously, it's a big day. But most of the work in an election is not in between 7 in the morning and 10 in the evening on polling day. As I said earlier, it's in that six months before, in the case of the Europeans, in that six weeks before, all of the preparatory work is there just so. It's like putting on a show, isn't it? It's uh, You've got the stage there is set for 15 hours of the drama of the election with, with the ultimate um, end piece being the count. When it comes back to it, all of the preparatory, all the rehearsals have been done all in that period beforehand. So that will be being done regardless of the Europeans now. So the later it goes, the more pain it will be for those administrators because they will have done that work. But they'll do it to the best of their abilities. Now they will deliver. We have to assume the poll will take place. Yes, yeah, you have to, have to you have to work as it will. And I personally, you know, like if I was going to bet a fiver either way, I'd bet that they would be yeah. taking place. Um, but of course, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, at LGAU, we often say things like, you know, local democracy is the bedrock of our kind of national and international democracy and, and something I absolutely believe. But when you come down to it, you know, this is the method that we choose to identify people who will be making decisions on our behalf in a democratic system. Mm. And without this, you know, the pencils and the posters and the rulers to shove papers into ballot boxes, we don't really have a, an effective democracy mm. or, or we have to find another way uh, of doing it, which mm. will be equally equally complicated. So, um, I, you know, thanks to your members for doing all this work so that we, you know, we can have this system. And I think the interesting thing is I've, I've, have, I've seen it in so many written articles on, on the uh, broadcast media. We are making arrangements for the elections. And it's just a statement. It makes it sound very, very easy. Without any real understanding that we're not talking of this huge machinery kicking into being. That huge, huge machinery isn't there. It's developed solely for that one event. And you are genuinely talking about, at best, middle-ranking um, local government officers delivering that against the background of all of the other pressures they have in doing their day jobs. They've got the additional issue this time of the local uh, elections ahead of the European. So, um, yeah, it's just remarkable that they will deliver, administrators will deliver both of those polls to the high qualities that is expected. But it's, it's, it's quite remarkable sometimes how the, the, their ability to do so under the, the, the most intensive pressure. Um, and I think I've said this before, but when it, when it comes to it, a, a good election, if you, if you don't know how the election's run, it's been run brilliantly. It's only when it goes wrong is it then suddenly on the front page, and very rarely is it on the front page of the local newspapers. So I take my heart off to those who deliver elections. I really do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Peter, for talking to it's us. It's my pleasure.
Well, it was fantastic to hear from Peter again this year about what goes on behind the scenes of all our elections. Um, and now we're going to introduce a little bit of what we think might happen on the night and what our coverage is going to be. Yeah, more shameless plugging of what we're going to be doing because we are uh, some of the only people who are with you all night and all day mm-hmm. uh, talking you through what's been happening in these elections, trying to make sense of it. Not just, and this is an important difference, I think, from, I don't think, you know, at the risk of sort of blowing our own trumpet, I don't think anyone else does this. No one else spends the whole time trying to make sense of what this means in terms of local politics, not just, as we talked about before, as a sort of opinion poll on Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, so we will be trying to get get into the detail and try and understand some of the things that are actually happening locally. We've already identified, Ingrid, you've done a lot of work, so pulling out you know, some of the councils we're going to be keeping a particular eye on as we go through the night. Yeah, um, there's 248 councils holding elections as well. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot, a lot. As well as um, six mayoral elections on the night um, oh, and 11 already. in Northern <laughs> Ireland as yeah, well. Yeah. So there's a lot, lot going on, but we've tried to pick some of the, um, the hottest races in yeah. the country. I mean, there is a lot going on. But not quite as much as that makes it sound. Yeah, it? that's because true. Because a lot of these councils are elected by thirds. Uh, a fair chunk of them, it's mathematically impossible for them to change control. So, yes, lots going on, but it's fairly kind of patchy, right? Yeah, it's so it's different stories in different, in different parts of the country. The Conservatives hold most of the councils already, um, and they are... You know, that's likely to be the case again at the, you know, by Friday at, at, at 8 p.m. But that doesn't mean that we won't see some changes. And I, I think that we'll see what we'll see largely is that there's going to be uh, a number of councils with slim majorities that are going to switch over into no overall control. Um, Labour is going to be able to claim a good night, I think, because largely because the councils that they hold already, they won't be losing. They can't be losing, by and large, just because they have mathematically safe majorities in these big mats. Are there any where... So I guess it's conceivable that the Tories could take control of Trafford back again? Yeah, I guess they could take control of Trafford. So there's only a couple of votes in that one. And so um, Trafford could could go either way so that is definitely one to watch it could be uh it could go to labor it could go to conservatives or it could stay in new overall control yeah, yeah. on the night but that in terms of big mats that's probably one of the few that that we're looking at for for really big changes i think that's right you know we could we could see some some changes in stockport that's pretty narrow isn't it we could get the lib dem res- resurgence in in stockport um it's currently a Labour minority administration. It was run by the Lib Dems until the last election. Uh, Walsall, the minority Conservative uh, administration, that could change. And they've got some pretty tense politics there yeah, as well. Yeah, they do. And they've had some local issues uh, recently. I think I think there's a bunch of kind of unitary councils which have all-out elections where we could see some interesting things happening. I'm thinking about the City of York. Brighton, Bedford, Stoke-on-Trent, they're all fairly finely balanced, uh, could move around. But aside from those, it seems to me that the story of these elections, and it's always dangerous to, you know, this is going out before the election, so I could be proved completely wrong, but I think the story of these elections is unlikely to be lots of 
clear changes of control of council administrations. We might see some going from minority control to majority control. We might see some going from majority control to no overall control with minority administrations. But I don't think we're going to be seeing councils going from Labour to Lib Dem, from Lib Dem to Conservative, from Conservative to Labour, or, or those sorts Except of things. Except maybe here and there. Except here and there, right? Around the edges, but not... I don't think we're going to see any big, clear national picture. I think the map's going to look a lot grayer. Yeah. So That's... grey is usually uh, for no overall control if, yeah. if people um, didn't know. That's but, true. But that's that's the one difference we'll see. I think we will see some definitely more change than we did last year, where except for London, it was basically no change, no change, no change. change, at all. No, no change. And even in London, much less change than the people, people were anticipating. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so there was a, a big head of uh, anticipation in London last year, wasn't there, you know? Could Labour take Barnet? Could Labour take Westminster or Wandsworth? No. No, they didn't in the end. Um, but of course, um, the ones to watch as well, you know, we're, we're definitely going to be keeping an eye on those councils um, where the councillors we've just heard from uh, will be will be running and uh, or, or not running in Michelle's case. And... Um, letting you know about those results too so what tell people what that looks like what do we actually where should they go so they need so to assuming come... all the listeners to this podcast are going to be spending the whole night following the local elections in detail what do they do well all you need to do is go to lgiu.org.uk yep. and you will find our live coverage we've got a live blog running we'll have lots of commentary we'll have lots of analysis and we'll be telling that story throughout the night, of course, with results as well. Um, we'll be doing uh, stock takes at various points throughout mm. uh, the coverage. And I want to stress that you do not need to stay up the whole night, although it would be great if you did. Um, I think people should. Oh. If they care about local democracy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, say that again at 3am. We do. <laughs> Uh, if I have to stay up, you have to stay no, up. No, <laughs> but what I was going to say is that people, can, but people can help us. People can participate, right? This isn't yeah. broadcast. I'm always astounded at how many people are up at 4 a.m. Yeah. tweeting us, retweeting us. So, it's great. You know, if you're there, if you're at a count, if you're at a, send us your pictures. Send us pictures. Yeah. Call us. We can record little bits and put it out on our on our post election podcast. Tweet us. Let us know what's going on. You know, help us share. Yeah, because I think there's a, there's, there's a really important, yes, partly this is about the results and the facts and the what's happening. That really matters. You, know, you talk all the time, Ingrid, about data and better understanding of this. But there's also a storytelling job to be done here. This is about telling the stories of what's happening locally, about why local democracy matters, about what people are standing for, what people want to do in their communities, what people have voted for. And I think that, you know, that storytelling is how we start to, get out of the, the, the sort of really narrow view of local elections as a sort of glorified opinion poll and actually start telling the story about what they mean. And if I was being really grandiose about this... Oh, do it. I'm going to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> never need asking twice. But, but I actually really think there's something important. You know, I think we are living through an era of very difficult politics. I think we see really, and we've talked about this a lot on the pod... We see really low levels of trust and engagement in local politics. We see a really divided nation. We see, you know, people across the country, and we heard it in some of the interviews, saying about how they've lost faith, you know, because of Brexit, because of parliamentary stasis, people have lost faith in, in politics. Well, actually, 
local politics, real improvements to the things that people can see and touch and feel in their everyday lives. That's how we start rebuilding all of those things. That's how we start reconstituting a really vibrant and productive civic life. So telling that story really, really does matter. Rant over. No, what, what, what can I add? I, I think that is That's the story of That's a pretty compelling case. Yeah. <laughs> so, again, once again, lgiu.org.uk. Join us. We'll be signposted right to the live blog. Uh, as Jonathan said, you can be involved. Tweet us. Email us. Let us know. Um, we'll be... You can even, like... You can even join us on the live blog if you want. And um, we'll be doing that from... Basically, when the polls close, although we'll be starting, we've started already, uh, the live blog's already started, um, and we'll be carrying on with that through all the results uh, as we go on, unless unless somebody has a crazy recount um, that goes That's on until morning. like Saturday morning. <laughs> but we still will be following that and posting it when it, when it finally it returns. Be, it wouldn't be the first time. No. Uh, and then we'll bring you another pod uh, next week. Next week. Giving us a sort of roundup of some of the some of the stories, top stories that we think uh, have come out of the elections. We'll tell you why we think the mainstream media, the national broadcast media, has got it all wrong about what this really means. <laughs> Except for the bits that we were wrong. Oh, no. <laughs> and if you're a new councillor, we'll be talking all about our, our resources for that next week as well. Our top tips. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Thanks for listening.